You're listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the Church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. Morning, everyone. Just letting people know that there's an AGM after the service today, 11:45. There'll be time to grab some tea and coffee and a biscuit before the AGM. As you know, in preparation for the AGM, uh, the title of the talk today is "War and Peace." <laughs> There'll be a few. We're after a few able-bodied volunteers after the service or AGM. We've got a couple of hard rubbish items to move out the front, so maybe speak to Mary on my left if you can help with that. We have Words of Spirit on this Wednesday, 6pm to 7pm, the 15th of November, for those who are interested in contemplating some holy words, a very quiet time for an hour, here at 6pm on Wednesday. Oh, and we have a surprise guest today as well. He said that he may not get here until 11. But uh, I really want to stress that everyone is welcome here, no matter what your background, ethnicity, sexuality, gender, whatever that may be. We meet on the traditional lands of the Ghana people and we respect their elders, past and present. We do survive on donations past and present, so uh, there is a place in the foyer to make a donation if people wish to. So as we enter into a time and space separate from the worries of the world, let's set the scene for our discussion of war and peace with Margaret playing some Prokofiev, Montague and Capulet that immediately conjures up the image of conflict, I suppose. And in advance, please note that if you think there are wrong notes being played, that is not Margaret, that's Prokofiev. Thank you. (laughs) It adds to the drama.
Incidentally, Prokofiev, and you'll hear more of him today, wrote the film score to the Soviet film version of Tolstoy's War and Peace. As is our custom, we light the flame on this chalice. It has represented many things in the past, and in World War II, it was a great symbol of liberation, of freedom from persecution. We may be weighed down heavily with the troubles of persecution and oppression in the world today, but the flame is also a symbol of hope. And now a poem read by John, who will come forward, a poem by Mahmoud Dawish, a famous Palestinian poet. As you prepare your breakfast, think of others. Do not forget the pigeon's food. As you conduct your wars, think of others. Do not forget those who seek peace. As you pay your water bill, think of others, those who are nursed by clouds. As you return home, to your home, think of others. Do not forget the people of the camps. As you sleep and count the stars, think of others, those who have nowhere to sleep. As you liberate yourself in metaphor, think of others, those who have lost the right to speak. As you think of others far away, think of yourself and say, if only I were a candle in the dark. And now, as is our custom, people may come forward with joys or concerns that they have, and uh, I'll light the first candle. Let's take a moment of silence to contemplate what we've heard. At this time especially, our thoughts go to those in Palestine, Israel, who are suffering, those who have been injured, those who have been bereaved. The escalation of conflict there has touched many, many thousands of families there and throughout the world. And we pray for peace. From our limited perspective, we may not know how it will arrive, but let us spend a moment praying for peace in that land. The reading from Anne uh, is, in fact, an excerpt from a resignation letter from the director of the New York office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. This gentleman resigned on the 28th of October as a protest. I'll leave it to Anne to read an excerpt from his letter. As a human rights lawyer with more than three decades of experience in the field, I know well that the concept of genocide has often been subject to political abuse. But the current wholesale slaughter 
of the Palestinian people, rooted in an ethno-nationalist settler colonial ideology, in continuation of decades of their systematic persecution and purging, based entirely upon their status as Arabs, and coupled with explicit statements of intent by leaders in the Israeli government and military, leaves no room for doubt or debate. In Gaza, civilian homes, schools, churches, mosques, and medical institutions are wantonly attacked as thousands of civilians are massacred. In the West Bank, including occupied Jerusalem, homes are seized and reassigned based entirely on race, and violent settler pogroms are accompanied by Israeli military units. Across the land, apartheid rules. This is a textbook case of genocide. The European ethno-nationalist settler colonial project in Palestine has entered its final phase toward the expedited destruction of the last remnants of indigenous Palestinian life in Palestine. So could I ask you please to look in the hymn books for hymn 226, Song of Peace. topic of war and peace. Now, I would like to point out that I'm asked to provide the topics for these reflections months in advance for the newsletter. So well before the terrible events of 7th October with the Hamas incursion into Israeli territory, I had selected a topic for the for today of war and peace. However, events I think have superseded the discussion I was going to make about Leo Tolstoy's novel. So uh, as I expect our guests may arrive soon, I'll introduce with some introductory slides 
Just a quote from Edward Said, a Palestinian intellectual. Why Palestine? Because it is a just cause, a noble ideal, a moral quest for equality and human rights. That is the motto of the Australian Friends of Palestine Association, which is an Adelaide-based organisation, been going since 2004, which speaks up where it can for the Palestinian cause, meaning a life for Palestinians with freedom and dignity. Just to give you some historical context, it is complicated, I'll try and make it simple. So on the left of the screen, 1946 is referred to because that's before what the Israelis call their War of Independence. Of course, Palestine or Israel didn't exist as such under the days of the Ottoman Empire. They were days when Jewish, Christian and Muslim lived together harmoniously, shared villages and streets and markets. However, the politics of World War I and the desire of the British, French and indeed Russians to expand their colonial influence in the world led the British to make promises to both Arab and Jewish leaders about the future of this bit of land. It, in effect, became a British colony after World War I. The population statistics are relevant. Prior to the turn of the century into the 1900s, the Jewish population was only a few percent. By the end of World War I, it had risen to an extent, but it was still less than 10% of the people that lived in that green area under that 1946 mark. During the 20s and 30s, the British t attempted to limit Jewish immigration into Palestine, but there was a lot of illegal immigration as well, as understandably Jewish people sought to leave Europe, where in fact they'd had a hard time for centuries, not just in the 20s and 30s. So by the time of 1946, you're talking about a Jewish population of some 30%, maybe a bit over 30%. But after World War II, the British left fairly suddenly, and so there was conflict between the Palestinian and Jewish inhabitants of the region. The UN proposed a plan, uh, and that's represented in the second slide along, whereby the Palestinian population would, would have those green bits and the Jewish population would have the remainder with Jerusalem shared. And then the war occurred. The Jewish proportion of the population after the 1947-48 conflict went from around 30% to around 80%. How did that happen? Well, there were more than a million non-Jewish people who were not there after the war. Some killed, but many, many fled, fled the violence and the dispossession. Many went to other countries. Some ended up in the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. And so if you look at that 1949 to 1967 slide, the third one, you can see the modern geography starting to take shape. The small strip uh, that's meant to be on the Mediterranean coast is the Gaza Strip. And that kidney-shaped green area is literally on the west bank of the Jordan River. That's why it's called the West Bank. 
and the little indentation in it is where Jerusalem is situated. After the establishment of the Israeli nation, there was still the problem of hostility between the two peoples that were living there. In 1967, the Israelis decided to resolve this by occupying the remainder of that map, which we would call Israel, so the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. So they became militarily occupied at that time. The problem for any occupier of a hostile indigenous population is that they essentially have three choices. They can make peace, but of course there are demands and costs that come with peace. They can militarily control, and in fact up until 2005 that was what Israel decided to do with the Gaza Strip. They pulled out in 2005, and they continue to do in the West Bank. And then the, the other option is some sort of elimination or expulsion. So with millions of people, that was difficult, but the, there is a question mark about the future policies. The reason that in the we have a 2008 uh, map there where the uh, West Bank uh, Palestinian areas are greatly reduced and speckled is due to the wall which was built and the settlements, uh, colonial Jewish settlements, which have been created throughout the West Bank, um, making it a less connected place. So what I'd like to do now is interview Mike Kazam. He's been a member of AFOPA since its inception. He's an office bearer. And he's spent decades, really, studying the Palestinian issue. I'll invite Mike to come up to the stage here. I've got a, a seat set aside for him. This slide, by way of further introduction, shows something of population density and the fact that the Gaza Strip is one of the most densely populated areas in the world. And there uh, we have a map of the Gaza Strip. Now, I just want you to imagine at the moment, at the bottom of the screen, which is really more or less the southwest, there I want you to imagine is Norlunga Centre. At the top of the screen, which is the northeast, I want you to imagine Grand Junction Road and approximately the line heading along the inland boundary, let's say, is South Road. So if you can imagine from Norlunga Centre to Grand Junction Road, more or less along the course of South Road, with a few bumps and variations, that's the size of the Gaza Strip, with about two and a quarter million maybe 2.3 million, about 60% more than the population of Adelaide reside in that space. So when you hear that Israel asked the people in the north to move to the south, that rolls off the tongue quite easily. But can you imagine saying to everybody living between Glenelg and Port Adelaide, you have to move south of O'Halloran Hill. You've got a day to do that. It doesn't sound feasible when you put it like that. Anyway, let's go to our guest, Mike. I have a mic for you. So please. Thank me. you. Well, to begin with, can we go back a little to the history and can you explain the 19th century concept of Zionism and has that changed coming up to the present day? Yeah, look, history is important. You can't understand the present without understanding the past. And 
in Judaism, there was always a concept of religious Zionism, which is the return of the Jewish people to Palestine with the coming of the Messiah. The, the significant thing about the 19th century is that Europe was bubbling over with nationalism, with anti-Semitism, and Europe was also colonising the rest of the world. What that meant for the Jewish people in many states didn't have rights similar to other citizens was that political Zionism became an option. By political Zionism, I mean a man-made return to Israel brought about by the Jewish people rather than something brought about by God. So Zionism emerged in the late 19th century in Europe as a response to growing nationalism across Europe and so why not a Jewish nationalism, to anti-Semitism across Europe, and to the possibility of creating a Jewish state in part of the Third World, which Palestine was located in the Ottoman Empire, so outside of Europe. So these forces came together in a movement that wanted to create a state in part of the Turkish Empire, and it was something that needed an imperial sponsor in Europe because the Turkish Empire which was then known as the sick man of Europe, was still an empire and was reluctant to give over the territory of the Palestinians, who were mostly Muslim, about 10% Christian, to give them over to a European settler movement. So uh, the origins of the State of Israel lie in 19th century Europe, and this has affected the development of the State of Israel because from its inception... It was to be a colonial project, and a colonial project, creation of a state for one group of people, and inevitably it was to be at the expense of another group of people. Uh, to fast forward uh, from the 19th century, that explains the impetus for legal and, and illegal Jewish-European immigration into the British colony of, of Palestine. We get to the end of the Second World War. In my introduction, I said the British pulled out fairly suddenly, the UN proposed a solution. Why wasn't that accepted by both parties? Can you just focus on that for a moment? Sure. Look, Britain came into control of Palestine at the end of the First World War. With the defeat of the Turkish Empire, the Turks lost their empire, and so the British and French carved up the Middle East between them, and Palestine went to the British. And for the, the Zionist movement, this meant the possibility of realising that state. So massive Jewish immigration occurred into Palestine under the auspices of the British mandate. That The British had an authority from the League of Nations, the precursor of the UN, to guide the Palestinians to independence, but at the same time they had this contradictory goal of trying to set up a Jewish state. So the interwar period was a, a period of great conflict because the Palestinian population did not want to be expelled from their country and did not want to be second-class citizens to a European Jewish population. The British tried to manage this and there was a, a revolt of the Arabs between 36 and 39 when everything else failed. They, there was an armed rebellion and the Second World War came along and the Second World War was significant in lots of ways. The Jewish movement to Palestine and out of Europe obviously accelerated, but it also saw the demise of Britain as a world power, and Britain was no longer able to control Palestine. Britain was on its knees, and the Palestinians in Palestine had been crushed effectively in that 
36 to 39 rebellion, but the Jewish settler movement had become much stronger. And we had a, a situation where there didn't seem to be any way of reconciling the competing demands of the, the European settler movement and the native Palestinians. The United Nations came along in 1945 and the, the British said in 1947 that they could no longer manage the situation. And so a partition plan was devised and you showed that earlier. The partition plan was rejected by the Palestinians at the time because they saw it as firstly illegal. There was no basis for the United Nations to tell a country that you will be partitioned against the will of the majority. But also for the Palestinians, they looked at the, the Jewish colonisers from Europe and they said, look, you're 30% of the population, two-thirds of you are recent migrants, you own 6% of the population, and yet this partition plan is giving you 56% of the country, including the best parts. So for the Palestinians, it was an imposition of a foreign state on them and to make matters worse, half the population and the territory that was allocated to the Jewish state were actually Palestinians. So they would be second-class citizens in their own country in this Jewish state if that partition plan was accepted. So they couldn't accept it and they resisted it, but ultimately they were unable to prevent Israel coming into being. So it was significant, wasn't it, that the surrounding Arab nations intervened militarily because Jordan crossed, sorry, Jordan, the country, mm. crossed over the Jordan River and took that area we now know as the West Bank. Egypt advanced into what we now call the Gaza Strip. And at the end of hostilities, that's where the ceasefire line was. Yep. So between the war of 47, 48 and 1967, they were areas where Palestinians more or less had control. But what then led to the 1967 war? Look, the, the war of 1948 between the Arab states and what became Israel didn't start with the entry of the Arab states because the uh, Israeli forces had already started to move outside of the areas allocated to them by the UN. They were happy to accept the plan because it gave them far more than they had. So you can see this. If you look up you know, the, the New York Times or the London Times, you can see where the fighting is, and it's in the Palestinian areas before the British departure, and you can see where people are being driven out and their towns in the Palestinian areas. So the Arab states intervened after the Israeli forces had already moved and expanded into the Palestinian areas. Step back a bit and say Egypt took control of the Gaza Strip at the end of the 1948 war and they did that because the Palestinians no longer had any government that could protect them or maintain it and the Jordanians took the West Bank of the Jordan. That was probably more to do with Jordan's ambitions in terms of getting more territory and they were an ally of Britain and so they were allowed to do that. So a small number of Palestinians remained in Israel and they lived under martial law for 19 years. In the interim, there was a war in 1956, which many of you will know of, and that was the Suez War. And uh, in that, uh, the British and the French allied with the Israelis in an attempt to topple the government of Egypt. The Suez War was important because it brought the Americans of the Middle East, and they've been a dominant player ever since. By the time we get to 1967, 
The question of the Palestinian refugees hasn't been resolved. The majority of the Palestinians that fled, and there were three quarters of a million, were never allowed to return. The vast majority were never allowed to return. Israel had become progressively stronger and the Cold War had intervened, so the Middle East was a highly militarized area. And there were a series of provocations on the borders between Israel and, and Syria and, um, and Egypt. And eventually this led to the outbreak of the famous Six-Day War, which in six days saw the Israelis defeat the neighboring three main Arab states, take the West Bank of the Jordan, take the Gaza Strip, which Egypt had been administering, and also take the Sinai Peninsula. And that set up the situation that within Palestine has obtained to the present day. So in a sense, why isn't that the end of the matter? Israel set out to occupy that territory for Israel. They won militarily. Why wasn't that the end of the matter? The problem was that Israel had a choice when it took the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. They wanted the territory. Historically, they wanted it. Militarily, they could take it. But they didn't want the population because they still had a commitment to a Jewish state and the Palestinians are overwhelmingly Muslim with a significant Christian minority. So they took the territory, but they ended up with millions of Palestinians that they didn't want. They couldn't offer them citizenship because that would mean they wouldn't have a Jewish state. They couldn't give them their own state because then they would lose those territories that they had conquered. So a situation came about which has lasted for 56 years that the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip, which should have been a temporary military occupation. Armies have wars, governments collapse, and then the victorious army has to set up a military government. That should have been a temporary situation, but it became a permanent situation for the reasons I outlined. No Palestinian state, they wouldn't grant a Palestinian state, and they wouldn't grant citizenship. What that has meant over time, and in, in the intervening years, there's been uprisings and wars. It, it's been very tumultuous and most of the suffering has been on the Palestinian side. But in the intervening years, that norm of a military occupation and then in, in recent decades, a siege around Gaza has just become a permanent state of being. And it's become so institutionalised that... Israel has been recognised by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and by UN agencies as having created an apartheid state. So this, this is the inevitable result of trying to rule a population that you won't give the same rights to as your own population, that you start to institutionalise ways of keeping your group dominant. You've talked about the UN or UN agencies not approving of that current situation and, that, and yet the US does seem to. So why wouldn't the US agree with the UN position, UN resolutions and so on? The United States has been a rogue actor in many senses. Uh, we live in the, the camp of the American allies, so most of us see the world through the American glasses, the, the, the American perspective. Um, but for the United States, they have for a long time had interests in the Middle East. They're interested in the oil of the Middle East. They're interested in good relations with the Middle Arab states. They were interested in, during the period of the Cold War against the Soviet Union, they were interested in trying to maintain their interests as opposed to letting the Russians get greater influence. But that was undermined 
over decades and continues to be by internal US domestic politics. And the United States is a country where there are many great things. Culturally, they dominate the world. But their political system is dominated in many ways by powerful interest groups, lobbies, whether you're going to talk about the National Rifle Association or the pharmaceutical industry or the oil industry or whatever. And when it came to the Middle East, the most powerful influence on US foreign policy was the Israel lobby. It was a domestic constituency which had power both in electoral terms in key states when the presidential elections happened. American politics relies very, very heavily on donations. The presidential election campaign costs run into the billions. So the influence of well-funded lobbies that have a single objective is significant in the US. We've seen another example, an embargo on Cuba for 60 years. Now, Cuba poses no threat to the Americans, but there's a significant exile community in Florida. It's an electorally significant state, and they have disproportionate power. In the United States, the pro-Israel Jewish community has disproportionate power when it comes to US foreign policy in the Middle East. And if we could then switch to Palestinian politics, because... There's lots, I mean, every day there's talk now about Hamas, but what's the origin of Hamas and what's the difference between them and Fatah, which is the Palestinian group which runs the West Bank? Right. So in, in the immediate aftermath of what the Palestinians call the catastrophe, they call it al-Nakba, which means catastrophe in English, in the immediate aftermath of 1948, the Palestinian leadership was non-existent. And it took a couple of decades for the Palestinians to regroup and try and resist the dispossession that they had suffered. And the movement that arose was closely aligned to third world liberation movements. It was largely secular. It had you know, different elements in it. It has Muslims and Christians. But it was largely secular and nationalistic. And uh, for decades, the PLO, which was the umbrella body for the different guerrilla resistance groups, was the spokesperson for the Palestinian people. They were the ones who signed the Oslo Accords with Israel in 1993, where Israel agreed to allow the establishment of a separate Palestinian state. That was 30 years ago. The fact that that Palestinian state didn't come into being started to undermine support for Fatah, the main Palestinian group, and for the PLO. In the 80s, the Israelis using a tried and tested colonial technique, looked for ways to divide the Palestinian resistance movement. And one of the ways was to allow the emergence of religiously based movements. And Hamas started out as a movement that was providing social services to people, particularly in Gaza. So they were religiously based. And they were quite different in that respect. So the Israelis allowed them to emerge and the secular movement uh, then had to contend with a religiously based movement. When the agreement with Israel for the Palestinian state to come into being was seen to fail, when the PLO who ran the Palestinian Authority was seen to be corrupt and ineffective, Hamas became the party that people turned to and in 2006 they won an election which was seen as internationally recognised as being a fair election. So what happened after that 2006 election? Basically the Fatah Palestinian leadership refused to hand over the keys to government buildings. And so 
in, in the West Bank, they stayed in power, and in the Gaza Strip, Hamas were able to take power as a result of that election. Is that right? It's, it's right in terms of their intentions, but initially, Hamas did take power. However, the attitude of the PLO is exactly what you've described, that they weren't prepared to accept that transfer of power, even though there'd been a fair election. The attitude of the Israelis and the Americans was the same. And so an undermining of the Hamas government, which the, had been elected across the West Bank and Gaza, began. And arms shipment were facilitated by Israel to the PLO forces, and there was a, a, a minor civil war, if you like. What it ended up with was the PLO, the Palestinian Authority, continuing to run the West Bank and Hamas's authority being restricted to the Gaza Strip. So the population was split in half, basically. So let's talk about that, because uh, Israel had made the decision to withdraw from military occupation of the Gaza Strip 2004, so mm -hmm. just before that election. So they would have assumed that Fatah would have taken over yes. and worked with them to maintain security in the area. But Hamas, in fact, became the effective government of the Gaza Strip. And so they were contained militarily by land and by sea, how does that relate to what happened on 7th of October? The underlying tension of what I was describing before, the, the colonial impulse of the Israelis, the underlying tension between wanting to colonise as much of Palestine as they could and the Palestinian resistance to that didn't abate. Between 1967, the Six-Day War when Israel took control of the occupied territories and the present, Israel has been shifting its own Israeli Jewish population into the Palestinian areas. So even before there was a peace agreement, the Oslo Accords in 1993, the Israelis were shifting their own population to the Palestinian areas. Now, this effectively meant, particularly after the peace agreements were signed, it effectively meant that the area set aside for the Palestinian state was being settled by Israelis, that is, blocking the emergence of a Palestinian state and the hope for peace on a two-state solution. So resistance to that occurred and continued to occur, and the response of the Israelis to resistance, and this is people resisting the realities of colonisation, the theft of land, the blowing up of houses of people who resist, the detention without charge, all of the things that we've seen, and they're setting up an apartheid state, the Israeli response is using military force. It's still a military occupation. So Gaza was subject to, this is the seventh attack on Gaza in 17 years, major attack. So the history didn't start on 7th of October. It There's didn't start on the 7th of October. Um, look, we only have a couple of minutes left. What do you see then is the Israeli strategy in respect of the Gaza Strip? And I'm mindful that several Israeli leaders have talked about the Palestinians, not just Hamas, but the Palestinians as uh, human animals and uh, going to make it uninhabitable, words to that effect. The Prime Minister has uh, referred to biblical references to the Amaleks, and there's a yeah. lot of old nationalistic talk in the Jewish scripture of annihilating the enemy and so forth. So is this talk? What is the Israeli plan, do you think? Look, all of us were horrified by the Hamas attack, but it occurred in a context of sustained repression of the Palestinians. 
The Israeli response has been something that has looks very much like taking advantage of one atrocity to generate another. And the atrocity that the Israelis are now engaged in, again, doesn't live in a vacuum. We have Israeli leaders using genocidal talk about the Palestinians, and we have Israeli military practice in the Gaza Strip reflecting genocidal tactics. They'll allege there's a Hamas guy living in that apartment building, we'll destroy the building to kill him. Now, that's not acceptable in warfare. You can't just mass murder civilians in pursuit of a military goal. But the tactics have been genocidal. If you say you're going to war against the Gaza Strip and you embark on a military operation, but then you also cut off the access to all the civilians, the two point something million, three million civilians, cut off their access to food, water, electricity and medication. This is a war on the population. So the Israeli leadership has been talking about finishing the job of 1948, that is finishing the expulsion of the Palestinians so that they don't have to come to terms with Palestinians either having a state or rights in Israel, that they can just continue building Jewish settlements and they physically remove the Palestinians. It, it is looking very much like what the Israelis are doing now under the guise of fighting Hamas is destroying the Gaza Strip physically so that people will have to leave and then turning the key at the Egyptian border. So it's looking like a textbook case of ethnic cleansing on a massive scale because Israel will not implement the agreements it made 30 years ago for peace with a two-state solution. We'll have to leave it there, but thanks for the conversation. Thanks for coming today. Thank you. Uh, feel free to take a seat. And uh, we'll invite Margaret to play a final piece as we take in and think about some of that. We hope you've enjoyed this Expanding Horizons podcast. These podcasts are the intellectual property of the presenter. They can be used only with the express permission and appropriate acknowledgement of the presenter. This permission can be obtained by emailing admin at unitariansa.org.au. Please feel free to leave a comment or visit us on Facebook or Twitter by searching SA Unitarians or by visiting our website at unitariansa.org.au.